At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Ah, there's a butte. Sometimes you gotta dig deep to find what you're looking for. So you made it. Is this heaven? Yeah. If it were, we'd be eating Pop-Tarts with Kim Novak. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. What are you doing out here? Searching, same as you. I don't even know what I'm looking for anymore. I don't even know who I am. They used to call you the man with no name. These days, they got a name for just about everything. Doesn't matter what they call you. It's the deeds make the man. Yeah, but my deeds just made things worse. I'm a fraud. I'm a phony. My friends believed in me, but they need some kind of hero. Then be a hero. Oh, no. No, no. I, you don't understand. I'm not even supposed to be here. That's right. You came a long way to find something that isn't out here. Don't you see? It's not about you. It's about them. But I can't go back. Don't know that you got a choice, son. No man can walk out on his own story. Happy hair season. Welcome to the desert of the real. Welcome to AM Bytenostic Radio, always broadcast at the virtual Alexandria, that state of mind where East meets West. Welcome to that dream of you, a distant ship smoke on the horizon. Welcome to the machine, my son, and the means to escape it. We don't take prisoners, but liberate them. We are not the final authority on anything, but hope to be an endless possibility for everything. You are the final authority, have always been. And it's time you realize this and realize how beautiful you were before they made you forget. Time to reach your potential, simply because it's time. You can do so many wonders, I just know it, I just know it. Divided we stand, together we rise, and together we are going to create better than the creator gods and their catamites and Karens in the establishment. The life you know, all the stuff that you take for granted, it's not gonna last. We stay the course! We are dead! We are all dead! We'll continue running with those searching for the truth and avoiding those who have found it. We'll continue writing our own gospel and living our own myth. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. I know it seems that these are confusing, labyrinth times, like Yaldi Baldi decided to bring his hammer down in 2020. But the game is still the same. Men still have nipples and infinity hasn't gone anywhere. It's still there for your taking. And as I keep saying, you were made for these Gnostic times, Philip K. Dick world, and the new age of Hermes. 
You sometimes feel like Alice down the rabbit hole, sure, and feel exactly what the caterpillar told Alice. You are a terribly real thing in a terribly fake world, and that, I believe, is why you are in so much pain. But I think I was in heaven, and now I'm not. Everything here is hard and bright and violent. Everything I feel, everything I touch, this is hell. That is true, but as the apocalypse of Adam says, we are higher than the gods and just need to wake up to this truth. And then we can change the simulation and the very narrative of the universe with our creativity and Promethean innovation. I mean, the Cheshire Cat told Alice too, imagination is the only weapon in the war against reality. Now I've gotten word that a child is using his imagination, and I've come to put a stop to it. 2020 is the war we were meant to fight, to win. You know that. This reality can be defeated with our imagination, since the universe is made up of information, and the pain will stop. There is no one path, mind you, and anyone who tells you differently is a charlatan and Moloch butt-slave. You are countless variables that united in the miracle that is you. Perhaps beginning billions of years ago when you were merely stardust. Don't let anyone tell you what's important or important to you. This is your journey across the spheres and down the rabbit hole and no one else's. This is your narrative. Don't allow yourself to be swallowed by anyone else's. As William Blake wrote, I must create a system or be enslaved by another man's. I will not reason and compare. My business is to create. And make interesting mistakes. Make amazing mistakes. Make glorious and fantastic mistakes. Break rules. Leave the world more interesting for your being here. Make good art. Don't put too much pressure on yourself, though. All you need to do is change one soul, touch one heart, and express one authentically you idea or act of kindness. And then a thousand Archons will have lost their grift. It's gonna be alright. If we have souls, they are made of the love we share. Undimmed by time. Unbound by death. I'm really excited about this show, as our guest will not only grant the essence of Gurdjieff's work, but his new book provides exercises that can center your heart and strengthen your mind and calm your soul. The book is Secrets of the Fourth Way, and our astral guest is Alan Francis, a true seeker warrior that exemplifies what is best in humanity and the spirit of activism. Alan's message is more needed than ever in these times of civil unrest and eroding rights, as you will see in a galvanizing and inspirational interview. And the very Gnostic-minded Gurdjieff's teachings are also more in need than ever. As Gurdjieff himself said, 
A considerable percentage of the people we meet on the street are people who are empty inside. That is, they are actually already dead. It is fortunate for us that we do not see and do not know it. If we knew what a number of people are actually dead and what a number of these dead people govern our lives, we should go mad with horror. You think Einstein walked around thinking everyone was a bunch of dumb shits? Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Now you know why he built that bomb. Without struggle, no progress and no result. Every breaking of a habit produces a change in the machine. Without self-knowledge, without understanding the working and functions of this machine, man cannot be free. He cannot govern himself, and he will always remain a slave. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Let's break these bonds and bring down the machine, and Alan's interview will offer a host of insights. In the end, you have to journey within and have a dialogue with your psyche, with the pleroma. You have to remember what you were destined to be back when you were just stardust. As Joni Mitchell sang in Woodstock, We are stardust, billion-year-old carbon. We are golden, caught in the devil's bargain. And we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. And as Jung once said, the task of consciousness is a Promethean burden. You can grab hold of that fire, but then you pay for it. Wise man once told me, don't ask questions you don't want to know the answer to. In between, are you ready to die for something so that you may finally live? Are you ready to grab onto what's important to you and remember when you were stardust and greater than the gods? Fuck those who tell you how to feel, who to hate, and what to do. Fuck them all, because once the dust is settled from this or any crisis, and everyone has gone back to their castles, as always and forever, they will leave the powerless in worse shape than before. We must focus on the downtrodden, because like us, they are truly the freak and the outcast. I know we're all pretty small in the big scheme of things. And I suppose the most you can hope for is to make some kind of difference. But what kind of difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me? In the meantime, we should burn their castles down. Those yellow kings and queens who sit back as nations tear themselves apart in the cities and internet social circles. We need to be like Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas when he says he has cast fire to the world and now watches it burn. Or as samurai poet Misuta Masahide said, Barns burned down, now I can see the moon. Where there is fire, we will carry gasoline. Don't let them take away who you are meant to be. That artistic miracle that took countless variables to manifest here in 2020 for the rescue operation of Sophia. 
Don't let them drain your essence and know that an artist is not a special type of person, but every person is a special type of artist. We can break from this divide and conquer devil's bargain. And if you do, we can burn their castles down and help the least of our brothers. This is where we hold them! This is where we fight! This is where they die! But first we must find that serenity and center our divine spark. For that, yes, let us do the teachings of Gurdjieff from the sapient and kind Alan Francis. Oh, Hermes, what have you done? We are with you. We are with you on this journey. level they send people on errands they play with people's minds they sway people to do things and think certain ways so that we stay in conflict focused on ourselves. so that we're always cleaning house or losing weight or dressing up for other people I think they get inside our heads and make us do destructive things like drink and overeat I've seen good people go bad smart people go mad I think at the highest level they do things that cause nations to go to war things that make no sense and I think no one knows they're being affected we all work out other reasons to justify our actions but free will is impossible with them up there this is the Aeon Bide interview, and with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Alan Francis to discuss his book, Secrets of the Fourth Way. Alan, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Miguel. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Pleasure is all ours. Really enjoyed your book, and we definitely look forward to hearing a lot about your work. Gurdjieff always gets a lot of interest. It's always a, a high-ranking, high-traffic topic, so that's good to hear as far as I'm concerned that the interest is still there, and I know you bring a lot to the table and new perspectives. But with us, too, to enjoy this ride, this journey, we have the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, especially considering it's the end of work day for me, but uh, very interesting topic we have tonight, so I'm looking forward to it. Well, Alan, uh, as we like to start here, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found Gurdjieff. Of course, you do talk about it in your book, Secrets of the Fourth Way, and your story is a very interesting story. Of course, it caught me that you were a hippie in the 60s when you found Gurdjieff. So tell us about that. Yeah, that, that, that I was. And uh, I was, when I was about 15, I began to study uh, uh, a little bit of philosophy and world religions. And I was looking for something uh, 
I had felt really even earlier in my very, very young age, five or six, I felt, why am I here? I actually asked myself this question and, and what's, what's the point of all this? It seemed to be quite uh, abnormal life uh, that we lived even at that young age. And so it wasn't till a little bit later in my teens that I began to explore uh, these kinds of ideas. Uh, and I came upon a book when I was 16 uh, called In Search of the Miraculous. And I began reading it, and very soon I read about oh, up to about half of it, and I realized that I wasn't as yet able to understand very much of it. And I said, okay, this is what I want. I was quite sure of it, uh, but I'm not prepared. So I waited another half year or so and then said, okay, well, the hell with it. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to read it anyway yeah. because, you know, maybe I'll never be prepared. <laughs> so <laughs> I, read, I read it and, and I, I don't know why. I just knew this is what I wanted. And so I began uh, looking for someone in the, in the Gurdjieff work. And this was extremely difficult, of course, way, way before we had um, modern computers uh, or anything of that sort. And the work, the foundation work, Gurdjieff Foundation, was not uh, advertised at all in any, in any place that I could find. And so finally... A few years later, after I did a lot of uh, hitchhiking around, as, as we did hippies, mostly uh, Los Angeles uh, to San Francisco area, up and down the coast and such, and backpacking, and asking people just randomly if they've heard of Gurdjieff, if they know something about it. Well, then uh, I was looking through uh, one of the free uh, hippie newspapers, uh, at the time, and there was an advertisement, 21st century, uh, Gurdjieff Uspensky, uh, meet at uh, Franz Hall, UCLA, uh, 8 p.m., I think it was Wednesday night. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And so I went there and I found <clears throat> someone who I really thought, this is a man. This is someone that, that really was interesting. Uh, not a phony, you know, as, as I met many of them in the 60s and, and uh, throughout uh, my travels. And so I began to study with him. His name was Jim Flynn and him and his wife, uh, Norma Flynn, were the heads of the Gurdjieff Foundation in Los Angeles. And I joined them in 1969. And at the same time that, that I did that, I began studying Taoism, Tai Chi, separately uh, under Master Marshall Ho. And it happened that my group leader, uh, Norma, also was studying with him, which I didn't know. So from two different directions, I, I came in contact with the work and with uh, Taoism simultaneously. And uh, that was sort of the beginning of my... Uh, real search, uh, you know, to step onto the, the path. Very cool. Yeah. Great story. And 
Uh, yeah, you were a seeker, according to your book. I love uh, one part that you share how you went on an adventure to the south in search of a brujo. How did yes. that, or, that's, or maybe tell the audience about that very cool adventure? Well, I, I was working at the time uh, during the summer with a friend of mine uh, on the uh, prune harvest up in Orland, California. And uh, I worked there to just to try to get some extra money and and because uh, I wanted to go down to Mexico and see what was happening there. And of course, was also under the influence of Carlos Castaneda's work. Oh, yeah. uh, although I didn't meet him until much later, uh, I found his uh, ideas very interesting. And so I went, uh, drove down uh, south of Mexico City and uh, landed in a place called Teposlan, uh, not far from Cuenavaca, Mexico. And something very strange happened there. Uh, I, I met this woman who, uh, who was a gringa, uh, and uh, uh, she allowed me to stay at her house. It was very nice of her. It was a friend of a friend. And I said, okay, as soon as I arrived, you know, I was very sort of excited being there. And there were some uh, Aztec ruins up not far from there. And I said, well, I want to go and, you know, see these ruins. And so I started walking uh, up this path. And I don't know, uh, something sort of pulled me off the path onto this little dirt path in, in the midst of the, all the vegetation there. And I came upon a cliff. And I thought, okay. This, these ruins should be up above this cliff, so I'll just climb it. Well, I got up something like 40 or 50 feet up uh, on the cliff. I had maybe another 15, 20 or so to go, and I just got stuck, just completely. I was uh, just on my toes on one, one little area on my, at my feet, and I was holding on with just my fingertips on another uh, purchase uh, slightly higher. And I couldn't go up at all. I didn't have any way to go. I'm not a you know professional climber. Uh, and at the same time, there's no way I was going to get down. And so I'm thinking, you know, what a stupid thing to do, <laughs> land here <laughs> in this position. This is ridiculous. And... I knew that if I fell, I would at least break my legs. There was nobody around, and I could definitely have died. And I said to myself, well, here's the test, isn't it? Uh, and I thought, what do I know of in, from Gurdjieff, from Taoist practices, even from Carlos Castaneda? What, what possibly could I do now? And all of a sudden, I was thinking about you know, the lower abdomen Dirjeev talks about and Dantian from the, from the Taoist tradition and so on. And I'm thinking, well, if there's anything to this, uh, hopefully something will happen now. And I focused on my Dantian and I focused on where I had to go, which was, which was I don't know, maybe four or five feet above where I was in order to be able to get up to the top. And Actually, before I wrote this book, I maybe told two people in my life about this 
situation, this event. And suddenly there was this tremendous, uh, I know it sounds new agey, but it, it was factual. It's, it had happened. A, a, a kind of vortex from my uh, lower abdomen up to where I needed to go and back. And so these two sort of came together, one from above and one from myself, from the bottom. And I was literally lifted up to this place uh, and uh, was able to grab onto uh, a small, uh, like small tree root that was there and, and pull myself up and, and got to the top of the uh, cliff uh, and survived. And be, one of the things that I remember of Uspensky used to say, uh, he said to Grzef, you know, what I'm looking for are facts. You know, ideas and theories are great, are wonderful, but I have to have facts. And Grzef said, well, you will have. And for me, this, this was this uh, promise kept. Uh, uh, and uh, of course, I never want to be in that situation again. Certainly, wouldn't do it intentionally. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it showed me that there was uh, forces beyond the ones that we usually consider to be real. That even gravity uh, is is not the last, you might say, uh, concrete uh, law of the universe. And uh, so that, yeah, that was a very uh, powerful event for me personally. But unlike many New Age uh, sort of teachers, uh, one event does not do it, uh, no matter how profound it is. And this was, for me, very profound. It takes years and years uh, to understand and to be able to practice, really practice an inner teaching. And these people that sort of say, well, gee, I just got enlightened. Well, this is nonsense, you know, as far uh, yeah. as I'm concerned. Agreed, agreed. And uh, yeah, uh, it definitely spoke to me. It was a powerful part in your book. I I have been to Cuernavaca many times as a kid, and I've been to Tenochtitlan, both to the the sun and moon pyramids, I think is one of the great wonders in the energy. And I've, as Vance knows, I have shared on this show that I have, being close to portals where gravity sort of loses it and things move upward. So uh, I could relate so much, Alan. And uh, although you talk about Carlos Castaneda in your book, I don't remember you mentioning him, but it's incredible you met him. Could you tell us uh, how was that? Well, I was involved in developing a, a school of Taoist medicine, and, and uh, I had a, a number of friends who were in the work, and one of them was uh, a man named John Ottaviano, uh, who became a very well-known veterinary acupuncturist. And uh, he, was, he was quite an interesting guy. We had a number of ventures together. Anyway, he, he knew Carlos Castaneda, and uh, another of his girlfriend at the time, Gloria, Gloria also knew, and several other people. Uh, I uh, was teaching under... Uh, at that time, uh, my uh, master Dung, my one of my Tai Chi teachers, my second one, and this woman came and was a student of mine who was his uh, Nagua woman. I didn't know that at the time, but so there were a number of these kinds of uh, 
strange connections that occurred. And I met met him with uh, a couple of my friends, and we had quite a nice long talk. And we were. I wanted to ask him a question. I said, "Well, Carlos, you're you you're very famous now. I mean, everybody knows you. That's connected with these kinds of things." And uh, I was wondering. How do you deal with 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 your ego? How do you deal with with uh, this uh, powerful uh, self image that one one creates? And uh, he said to me, "Well, Alan, one of the things that I do is sometimes I turn to myself and say, Carlos, you're a son of a bitch, you know, sort of <laughs> stupid son of a bitch, you know." And I looked at him. I said, "Yes, but." Does that help? <laughs> and he said, "Not really." <laughs> Not really. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's interesting to hear people uh, have we have the same problems. <laughs> oh yeah. And we have to find a way. And Gajif, of course, has a very uh, concrete uh, set of sort of steps that helps us deal with a false self-image and and with ego, and uh, to. One of the main things that we try, of course, in our work is is to get rid of this this falseness in ourselves, and that's very difficult. Uh, and it and it it takes in this idea that Gurdjieff speaks about as uh, intentional suffering, uh, and it's a different suffering for a different purpose. Most of our suffering is unconscious, and here he wants to make it conscious and for a particular aim. That is to burn away all that's false in us and to come to our real essence, who we are. So uh, this uh, question of self-importance, is, as uh, Carlos spoke about it, is a very big question. And if, unless you address it, no matter how uh, sort of high you get, you might say, uh, you're going to fall. And uh, so I think that uh, this is... This is one of the crux that difficulties that people have if they try to enter away. They have to, they have to kneel down, you might say, and 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 submit to a higher force, and uh, and allow yourself, in a sense, to be purified by by this cross, this suffering. Yeah, interesting because. I know uh, Gurdjieff believed that we have a, an authentic essence, but did he have a concept of the ego? Because I know he talks a lot about different eyes that we have to sort of deal with. To me, it always struck more like the skandhas of Buddhism, always shifting and nothing is different today and I'm not the same person this morning that I am now. Or how, What was Gurdjieff's stance on this? Well, he said that something had happened to the human being at some point in our in our development and he speaks about this idea of kunda buffer which is something that he says was put into us and of course this is kind of a strange idea but uh if if it's real then it explains a great deal about why human beings are psychologically so imbalanced uh, why we killed uh, tens of millions of of other human beings in the last century, and we still do. Uh, that man. that's that's insane, you know. 
and that we sort of just go over that and say, well, that's just the way people are is also insane. It's, it's, it shouldn't be, and we shouldn't be murdering uh, people. And uh, so one of the things he says about this uh, is that we see things upside down. So that's part of uh, the beginning of the problem. We have, instead of valuation, for example, of something like this program and, and what we're trying to do, that is to come to a, a higher level within ourselves, to actually begin to evolve again as human beings, that we don't see that as very important. And in fact, we put everything uh, in life above that. We put making money, being, uh, being important uh, to other people, having this uh, self-image, which is, which is something connected with ego. He doesn't really speak about ego uh, directly. Uh, and the uh, thing he does speak about is vanity and pride. So this is, of course, connected with ego. Vanity, pride, and self-importance. And he says these, these are sort of the very negative parts of ourselves which instead of being uh, reduced uh, through our life is actually strengthened. And what we really need is to uh, begin to have an, an aim, an aim in which we want to become more real, more authentic selves, and do away as much as possible with this uh, egoism that uh, really controls our lives. And uh, under that general problem, there exists uh, the problem of what Gurdjieff speaks about is suggestibility. That, I, that if somebody tells me something, and this happens all the time, of course, on the news and so on, they tell you something, and then somebody else says something, and already people believe it. Uh, without having direct experience in in the situation, people tend to be under a kind of hypnotic trance. And Gurdjieff spent half of his waking time, he said, trying to help find a way where people would get out of this trance state, uh, which is uh, in Buddhism would be connected with with uh, Maya in the Hinduism. You know the 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 illusionary uh, world. So uh, I think that although he doesn't uh, speak about egoism uh, so much directly, he does speak about it in terms of pride and vanity. He calls it Mr. Pride and Madam Vanity. Uh, and uh, I, th I think that we all, if we sometimes look at ourselves, which is one of the three major pillars of the Gurdjieff work is not only to observe oneself, but to learn from observing oneself that uh, vanity and pride is very strong in, in, in just about everybody. And sometimes it takes the form of a negative self-image, for example. I'm so terrible, you know, nobody's as bad as me. Well, that's another oh, yeah. form of pride, mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, so he is is 
working in his uh, methodology to help us rid ourselves of this false image that is, I think I'm very, maybe I think I'm a very giving person, you know, or I think I'm a very honest person, and I see that neither of those are true, that I'm not really giving, and I give because I have vanity. So I can say, as in the Bible, it says, you know, the person who uh, speaks to God and says, look, look at all I've given. You know, look, look what a good guy I am. Uh, this is what, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're and, praying in the streets, right? The, they have their reward. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. And that's, that's true. Yeah. And so they will not evolve because they do have their reward. Yeah, I think these days we call it virtual signaling. At least that's sort of the internet term. But um, yeah, I find obviously Gurdjieff's ideas just fascinating. And needless to say, it's no secret that they are very Gnostic, the idea that humans are mostly machines and asleep, uh, trapped inside their own heads, and that you have to self-remember who you were or the best part of yourself. So these ideas are extremely Gnostic. And of course, that's no secret that Gurdjieff interacted with Sufis. He interacted with Yazidis when he was younger. And Armenia was always a hotbed of Gnosticism in medieval times. So uh, I guess that what's separate is that Gurdjieff didn't have such an acosmic or negative theology like the Gnostics. He didn't see the world as a prison or these dark agents trapping us inside of our bodies, did he? He was pretty, um, I think, materialist. What did they say? He was panpsychic. All there was was matter. Well. I'm sorry, panhylic. I said it wrong. Yeah, panhylic. That's one of his, his methods, is to say things that, that are, that are uh, shocking in some way, like man is machine, as you were talking about. And when he says that, he says it intentionally. He's giving you one end of the stick. Because if man was just a machine, of course, then there would be no possibility for us to evolve. So he does that quite a lot. He says uh, we're more material than the materialist, which is which is another you know <laughs> way of shocking people to think is is this is this true, you know? And what does it mean to be more material than the materialist? Uh, and Certainly, when you speak about the Gnostics and the Essenes, uh, Gurdjieff in his book uh, goes back to that that uh, axial age, the sixth century BC, which was such a, a an amazing time. And he points to the city of Babylon, where the exilic prophets uh, were taken by Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, he says that at that time. There, there were many wise men that gathered in Babylon in the 6th century, and among them were either these people themselves or the representatives. And he said Pythagoras was there, for example, and uh, someone representing Tao, probably uh, Lao Tzu or uh, Confucius. And uh, there was a shaman, there was... Uh, uh, of course, Isaiah, and and many, many, many different representatives of what became a whole new birth of teachings 
that spread out through the whole world. And uh, quite an, an amazing story he has in his book, All and Everything, about that. Um, uh, you see uh, the, uh, the inner part of Christianity connected with Isaiah, the prophet, and previous to that, Melchizedek. Uh, and all these uh, groups seemingly are connected then with this idea of the fourth way, that, the, that the, at the center of that uh, meeting in, in Babylon and, and connections that spread out, was this fourth way teaching, which came from a society uh, uh, that arose in the 2500 BC at the time of uh, the, uh, let's see if you can remind me, it's uh, 2500 BC was the... Uh, Axial age, yeah, when... No, that was... That was oh, that, you're even going further back in time. Yeah. Uh, in any case, it was in Samaria, and oh, yeah. uh, there was the arising fourth way uh, school, uh, the Sermong, which has links all the way back, he says, to the Akalan uh, society uh, back as far back as uh, pre-flood times, and so this this sort of core of of humanity. Uh, began to have an influence on us uh, from a very early time and was trying to uh, reverse the entropy that had taken place and begin to find uh, a way in which human beings could come to a more conscious life uh, and a more authentic life. And so, yes, there, there are... Uh, for example, he points to uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh as profound influence on him that his father taught him uh, when he was young. In Gilgamesh, you have the assembly of gods uh, who are not uh, interested particularly in human evolution. As a matter of fact, they seem to be against it. And uh, that was the flood before the flood. And... Uh, one of them, the clear idea, he says, uh, well, I'm going to warn human beings so that there will be a remnant, a surviving remnant that can go on. And if you look at, as you know, as the ancient teachings, there, there has been always this idea that there is God, which is, which is the highest level of consciousness or intelligence, uh, from which the word comes, and there are gods. And these gods are generally going to be like in the Greek myth, they're going to be planetary gods. So they're at a certain level, they're at the astral level, and they are not wanting, as it says in the Bible, for human beings to eat of the fruit of the tree of life, which is, that is that they can become like gods. So yes, Gurdjieff also agrees with this kind of idea that there are adversarial forces uh, against human development. Mm, very interesting. And 
Yeah, I love what you say about how he liked to shock people. Because, for example, when he said, we are food for the moon, that always stayed with me. And once in a while, if I'm outside with the kids and it's night and I look up, I'll say something, oh, my God, the moon's going to eat me. And the kids are like, what are you talking <laughs> about, Daddy? Oh, never mind, never mind. So what do you think you meant by that? <laughs> yes, I, I, I think that if we consider the moon as a magnet, then it makes sense because this magnet pulls the tides, which are salt water. It pulls on the sap in, in, in the plants and the trees, and it pulls on us as well. We're part of organic life. And this pull is, is the material you we were talking about. This pull is a pulling of our energy from the level of the earth to the level of the moon. And this is certainly one of the things that, that we want to keep our energy because in keeping our energy, uh, we begin to build the possibility of an inner body, as the Taoists say, the immortal embryo. Well, this idea, of course, is exactly the same as Gurdjieff speaks about, is to develop higher bodies within this physical body. Maybe that's what Kubrick was trying to say with the uh, embryo or Arthur C. Clarke in the uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. That's possible. Yeah, that's yeah. definitely possible. Yeah. Definitely would be reasonable. And, uh, yeah, this is really fascinating. Uh, I love uh, in your book how you talk about, well, let me back up. I am, uh, as the audience knows, I'm a recovering alcoholic drug addict. So I've been uh, part of my, you might say, spiritual life has been AA meetings. Haven't been in a couple of months for obvious reasons. But you definitely deal with addiction and the work of Gurdjieff, and you deal with AA. And of course, it's no secret that Gurdjieff himself treated alcoholism in Russia and Paris through hypnotism and other forms. But maybe you can share with the audience, Alan, how the work and help with uh, addiction. Well, yeah, in my book, I speak about... Uh, not everything connected with my life, but my uh, father was an alcoholic and, and violent alcoholic. And uh, so from very early life, I, I had uh, constant shocks related to here's a loving father, here's a devil, you know. Right, I know that, yeah. Yeah, how, how to deal with that? You know, a young, young uh, person, uh, sees this as a part of what I was telling you about, this kind of insanity that, that exists in the world. And so at one point, uh, I be became a founding director of this drug and alcohol program on Skid Row in Los Angeles on 6th and San Pedro, and we, it was called Turnaround. And it was a, a program that uh, had a different approach to addiction, and part of that came out of uh, my experience with Gurdjieff work and, and Taoism, and that was that we brought people into an environment, and this is what one of the important things, I think, and people would come, both street people, uh, right from, you know, uh, really skid row. I mean, we had a police station one block uh, from us 
and cocaine well, it was called cocaine alley on the other side wow. and you had coke addicts and alcoholics and everybody running down the street you know robbing people all kinds of things happening there and both the addicts and people who would come from city hall deputy mayor different people to see what we we're doing walked in there and said what's happening here because it was completely peaceful. I mean, literally, we'd had no guards, we had no dogs, we had no, you know, protection, you might say. And, and yet, as soon as people walked in, they would comment, why is it so peaceful in here? You know, why is it so calm? You know, it's, it's like going in a church or something. And one of the things we had, we, people were uh, sitting around and they would have uh, auricular acupuncture uh, so acupuncture uh, was being developed for uh, addiction stimulating certain neurohormones and such things and endorphins and people would sit around in a circle and this was part of the concept and they would be in a state of meditation and these are people literally off the street Wow! and they would come into the state of meditation we would have little talks with them uh, and there was also AA meetings and, and, and uh, uh, other kinds of 12-step uh, programs uh, that we had there. We had uh, testing which was again a kind of measurement and a lot of that was for people because they were coming out of the uh, LA County jails and such. Uh, that they needed tests in, in order to prove their sobriety, in order to keep uh, being on probation. And uh, so we developed this uh, computerized testing uh, system was given to us to work with. And so instead of them being antagonistic towards it, which you'd expect, you know, you want me to prove I'm sober, you want me to prove I didn't, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was nothing like that they were actually happy we were doing it. And they were proud that they were clean and sober another day. And, uh, but, but the crux of the thing was that they could be in an environment that was, that was more conscious, that was more meditative, and that this was something that they actually wanted, but perhaps never knew that. You know, because, of course, addiction in the street is a kind of uh, strange excitement that, that one has about these things uh, and uh, attachment to this, uh, this uh, behavior that's so harmful and yet attractive in some way. Why? Why are we attracted to something that's going to kill us? That's that that's harmful to us, our family, and everybody. Exactly. And uh, this is certainly connected with this idea of kunda buffer, with this idea that something has gone wrong with the human psyche, something very deep. And uh, here, we, people had a chance to see and feel, and uh, have a fact, a real fact, that it's possible to be different that one doesn't have to be under this what we'd call a lunar influence yeah 
entropic influence that leads us all eventually to death unless we develop higher bodies, uh, which is a part of most uh, ancient traditions, that this is possible but difficult. And uh, Gajif, if you look closely at his uh, ideas in the food diagram and table hydrogens, which is difficult to understand for sure, uh, you will see eventually, if you study also Taoist alchemy, real, real Taoist alchemy, you see that they are very parallel. That the idea of there, there are, in a sense, three kinds of foods, that there's a food we eat uh, normally, and there's air we breathe, the prana, uh, or dachi in Taoism, and, and there's also all the electromagnetic impressions that we take in through our senses, both our five senses and higher senses, and that these all can contribute to the development of a higher body. But we have to know the steps. We have to know the process. And uh, because we're so, I would say, screwed up, to put it uh, simply, (laughs) that it's very difficult for us, and we need something more than what we can do as individuals. We, are, we have possibilities in individuals, but Guji says that we need three lines of work. We need to work for ourselves, with ourselves, and, and, and that's really a, a responsibility we each have, but we also need to work with others. And in this way, Guji says uh, Buddhism began to, to go off the path very early because people began to put themselves in in little cells you might say for the evolution Gajif says that buddha wanted people to interact because in interacting there's constant friction there's difficulties and they can act as a mirror for you so you see this part of yourself and of course aa very much does that as well it's one of its sort of primary methods uh, and so you, you're faced with each other, and each other has the same problems as you. You're not unique. <laughs> you know, you're, not, you're not a unique being. You're just ordinary, and you have to accept that if you want to go further. And the third line, of course, is to work with a teacher uh, in, in, a, in a work uh, situation. And that's, of course, why we are working to develop this school in Spain this next year so that we can accelerate the algorithm. And that has been a problem now with the foundation, Gurdjieff Foundation, which I was in for 35 years and finally left because I found that the foundation no longer really supported this process well. And, uh, but it did at one time it did under under some really amazing uh, teachers like Madame de Salzman, Gajif's first uh, uh, the first person that Gajif put in charge, uh, and uh, Michelle de Salzman, their son, and uh, Lord Petlin, who who was the teacher in the uh, in America, the main teacher, and uh, many others, of course, and. For a time, there was this powerful 
influence, a conscious influence uh, that that really uh, made the work work. But then gradually that influence diminished and Gurdjieff himself said within three generations uh, his teaching would begin to to change and not in a positive way uh, but uh, he basically said that this of course occurs with almost all teachings and you either then have a uh, dissolution of the teaching uh, or you have the teaching with a kind of you know, sign above the building saying this is the Gurdjieff work and and the building is empty. Or lastly, you have a rebirth, a renaissance. And that's what we're looking to do, to, to bring about a renaissance of Mr. Gurdjieff's work. Vance, do you have a question for Alan? Oh, yeah, I've got a whole bunch of them. Don't know which one to ask first, but I'll start with, are you familiar with Samuel Weor? I've heard the name, but I haven't uh, read it, read anything. Oh, okay. Um, the reason I ask is because he's an alleged Gnostic person who apparently, and I just found this out, has borrowed a lot from Gurdjieff's teachings. Another question I had was, uh, uh, in the Enneagram, 3, 6, and 9 seem to have a special relationship because they're in you know, a triangle and not connected to the other points. Correct. And Tesla said that if we only knew the magnificence of three, six, and nine, we you know learn the secrets of the universe. Do you think there's a connection between what Tesla said and and the enneagram uh, uh, Gurdjieff came up with? And did Gurdjieff know about Tesla? There's no doubt that that Gurdjieff knew about Tesla. As a matter of fact, uh, he uh, built a transformer himself based on Tesla's work. Uh, and, really? And they okay. used it. Yeah, him and his brother. And uh, there's some of us, and I've been looking, if anybody finds uh, a, a clear factual connection, I would be thankful. I've been looking for years to see whether uh, anywhere it's written that Gurdjieff met Tesla. I think he must have. Uh, one reason, of course, he was in New York at the same time as, as Tesla was a number of times. Mm. Two, he knew about Tesla very, very clearly. Three, in his book, uh, All and Everything, he speaks about this, this uh, being, Gornahor Harhark. And Gornahor Harhark, in the book, creates the uh, transformer uh, that produces electricity. So right in his book, he's talking about, you know, somebody created electricity, AC electricity. Uh, and, and here he's saying that it, it's this person, right? And uh, so some of us in the Gurdjieff work believe that uh, he's speaking directly about Nikola Tesla in the book. Whoa, <laughs> that's fascinating. I wonder who else he may have been influenced by in that. Uh, how about Freud or Jung or other psychologists? Because the field of psychology was, you know, kind of, kind of in its, um, well, teenage years or something. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say that um, a lot of the principles that I've heard about, I don't know much about the teachings, but a lot of the principles that do coincide with the things that psychotherapy goes after, at least in the mental. Maybe he would say that was the, uh, the you know, one of the three ways prior to the fourth way. 
Well, Gurdjieff sometimes put certain people down, uh, and I think Freud was one of them, but he also uh, said some things about Madame Blavatsky and, and uh, uh, other, other uh, people that, that were well-known at the time. And again, I think to some extent he was, he was shocking people intentionally. But uh, I don't think he ever met Freud uh, or Jung, but of course one of his close adherents uh, was was a well-known student of uh, Carl Jung, and uh, was his apparently his top student before he went over to Mr. Gurdjieff, wow. and uh, that was Maurice Nicole, and he wrote many books uh, on the Gurdjieff work, and his sort of central theme was the relation of esoteric Christianity to the Gurdjieff work. And uh, he's a very interesting uh, pupil, and uh, I think he ranks up there with with people like uh, Orage and uh, uh, close maybe to Uspensky. Although Uspensky, I think, was was uh, the uh, most uh, intelligent uh, of all of them, uh, and. Uh, he wrote the book as that I first read, *In Search of the Miraculous*. And uh, so, as far as psychology, I think that you recognize that psychology, Freud and Jung and many others, uh, were connecting with very ancient uh, Greek teachings, for example, uh, with uh, Freud and more universal. Uh, myths and, and uh, teachings uh, with Jung, and that those had a tremendous influence on what was becoming modern psychology. Uh, although Freud said to Jung, reportedly, when uh, Maurice Nicole left him, he said, look, look what happens to your students. They run, they run to Gurdjieff. <laughs> so apparently Freud knew about Gurdjieff. <laughs> so maybe he influenced them. <laughs> I think that's very possible, uh, but but Gurdjieff was an uh, omnivorous uh, reader, in the sense of the sciences and uh, psychology and everything that he could get his hands on, related to uh, what was known in neurophysiology and such things at the time, and and that again is one of the big factors of Gurdjieff says about combining the wisdom of the East with the knowledge and energetic of the West, the science of the West, and, and to create something new out of this synthesis. And this is what's been happening with psychology. And I would say there are three major sort of factors. There's one is, is uh, ancient mythology. Two is the study of the brain and, and the neurophysiology and neurochemistry, which has is, which is be begun to have a big influence on psychology. And I think the interaction of these two, of sort of Western science and Eastern ideas, uh, came together. And then a third factor entered in, which was the idea of working with the body. 
So then you have psychological somotherapy. You have the combination now of, of, of looking at the human being through the body in which is the encapsulation of all the functions of the body. You know? So you began to have this, uh, these new kinds of psychological methods. One of my friends who was in the work for years, Jack Hare, uh, was one of the pioneers of this, of this uh, method. And also then you see um, sort of very interesting branches that came about, uh, like when you're aware of movement awareness, for example, uh, and various kinds of therapies that developed connected with the working of the body. And these were highly influenced by Gurdjieff and, of course, also by other Eastern teachings like yoga and Tai Chi and Judo. And so now there, there is this whole series of uh, therapies, whether you call them psychological or something else, that, that begin to synthesize these factors. And so uh, Gurdjieff and Madame's son, for example, was a psychiatrist. Well, he was the head of the Gurdjieff work for a number of years and, and was the one who gave me permission to start new centers. And he was a psych psychiatrist, so there must have been something uh, uh, to it. And I think psychiatry has been evolving and can be a great help. And the, ad the other kinds of processes, like with the 12-step program, all of these can be looked at as means to help to correct the entropy, you know, the dysfunction of human society. So I'm, I'm actually rather uh, positive about the possibilities in uh, psychology today. Please tell us about your center, uh, the struggles, and I know you mentioned it early in the interview, but when will it become a reality and how can people know more about it? Well, the, the idea for the center came about when I saw that, that there was no, uh, not much initiative left in the uh, foundation. And uh, years ago, I, I started the Gurdjieff Foundation in Oregon because I wanted a kind of new initiative and there, very little was happening. And uh, then I, I got the idea of... Uh, developing the uh, a center in in Russia, in Moscow, and Gurdjieff says, uh, he said, begin in Russia, end in Russia. And nobody really, well, a few people in the foundation uh, were supportive, but most mostly they were not supportive. They were actually uh, uh, negative towards the idea. Uh, but anyway, I set up this. Uh, Gurdjieff uh, Center in, in Moscow and have been going there 15 years now. And uh, I realized that what I want, though, would be to help to rebirth uh, Mr. Gurdjieff's school. And it seemed like nobody was doing that, just like no one was going back to Russia. And uh, so I developed this, uh, this aim to start a school and began to um, think about where it could be. 
and uh, I have uh, this uh, student uh, who's also the manager, uh, Usi, and uh, he is the the manager and together we began to think that the best place might be Valencia, Spain. And uh, he's been there now and I'll be there soon. And we're going to buy some property and uh, hopefully with the help of other people, develop it into a full-fledged school, something like Virgis Pire outside of uh, Paris. And uh, to make possible the uh, faster, more rapid solution to man's problem of awakening and growth. So hopefully we were going to uh, try to begin a little bit earlier, but this uh, uh, virus uh, has everybody in an uproar and certainly a big concern for a lot of people. And so we're hoping now that in springtime of next year, we'll begin uh, the school in around Valencia, Spain, not actually in the city of Valencia, but nearby. And uh, we hope many people will come. We have some friends in different parts of the world, uh, teachers who've been in the work a long time who are interested in supporting this process. And uh, we will have various programs, uh, some uh, short programs for people coming, uh, maybe two to four weeks, for example, and longer term Uh, programs where people live the work uh, and perhaps retire there if they if they wish to Uh, so this is uh, this is idea and of course it's based on the three main principles of the work self-observation to know myself uh, remembering myself that is to to being uh, present through my feelings, my cognitive emotions, and finally, uh, to be present, to sense myself, to be in my body. These are the three, if you look at it as a kind of triad, these are the three uh, pillars of, of the work. Then there are seven uh, secondary aspects. So we hope to bring this together, to bring together some, some very good teachers Uh, because we're not going to be doing it alone. And uh, hopefully we will have uh, uh, a good number of uh, students and uh, we will do what what Gurdjieff set out to do and was able to do in his lifetime uh, and to help complete this, uh, this process, this note in the evolving octave of the work. Alan, I'm curious, is there something special about Valencia that had you choose that city or, you know, environs for the school? Well, I think it was a combination of, of factors uh, that, that I looked for and also uh, intuition, uh, sort of like dowsing, you might say, you know, something where you feel that, that this area is is the right area. One of them is that it's not on the Atlantic coast, uh, which which is prone to much greater uh, weather phenomena, and 
I'm uh, one of my concerns, of course, is like Gershif is looking at all the different uh, outer conditions, uh, both political and, and physical, that that might uh, interfere with the work. And uh, some people, of course, think that there's going to be a global warming process uh, that uh, that will influence the uh, cities uh, near the oceans and so on. Uh, I'm not so sure of that. Uh, there's quite a bit of uh, contradictory evidence that we're going into a cooling period, uh, a maunder minimum, it's called. I don't know if you're familiar with that idea, that right now the sunspot levels uh, on, are on a tremendously uh, low uh, cycle. And uh, in 200 to 300 years ago, we had, we had the mini ice age, what was called the mini ice age, where through this maunder minimum, uh, we went through a, a pro prolonged cold spell. So either way, whether it's cold or hot, uh, the area in Valencia, which is sort of in the middle latitudes and on the Mediterranean side, should be relatively stable compared to many other areas, certainly in comparison, for example, to, to uh, Moscow. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, well. A little bit cold over there. It could be very cold. It's possible. In any case, that was one aspect. Another aspect is that we are near the sea and not too far from some uh, people coming, for example, from Greece or from Russia or from uh, South America or from America. And it's fairly easy to get there. It's not too pricey. And the land itself right now is, is at a, a very good price uh, to buy land, even to buy with some housing on it. So we hope to be able to gather what uh, monies we have. And it's really right now just our own monies that uh, we're talking about, a few of us. Uh, but hopefully there'll be other people willing to contribute and to buy uh, a nice bit of land that we can grow organically on so we don't have to have uh, GMOs, for example, or insecticide in our bodies or in the bodies of children that might come and that it has uh, very good water. Uh, quality water is generally good. Uh, it has waterfalls and various things that, that I think are very healthy for people uh, to go back to nature, but also to be connected with a city. And Valencia seems to be a very fine city, has holistic health in it, uh, and people tend to be friendly rather than suspicious as within other places. So for all those reasons and more, uh, it seems that this is, this is going to be a good site for the renewal of Mr. Gershu's school. Yeah, very good. Wonderful. Well, we look forward to it. And uh, as mentioned, we will also have this in the show notes and the book and the website. So check it out, audience. So, But we are at the end. First, I'd like to say, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company and being on our side. Oh, it's a, always a learning experience. And I'd never known anything about the Enneagram until this show. So it's interesting. I'll have to look into that more. Well, thank you, guys. You're great. I really appreciate it. Very, very good interview. It was more like an exchange between friends, which I prefer. 
Indeed it was. A great conversation and good luck with everything, Alan. I appreciate what you're doing. And uh, yes, thanks for spreading the light into this world. And there you have it, my beloved True Seekers. The first part of our interview with the wonderful Alan Francis. In our second part, Alan explains in a lot of detail what is Gurdjieff's Enneagram, truly a unique spiritual system. And he'll take us down the Enneagram for exercises and insights to center your heart and strengthen your mind and calm your soul. Alan will share what it really means to be a being and to be in being, as well as many other Gurdjieff concepts. This will lead to understanding how to deal with fear and other negative emotions. And much, much more. All these insights needed in these days of social unrest and rising oppression and swelling cunder buffers. So become an AB Prime member or patron at Patreon for the full fourth way. And if you find value in this podcast or any of my other podcasts. It really helps grow this red pill cafeteria. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle. You won't find this Gnostic content or many of our guests anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. Damning your soul has never been this cheap, but you'll get your spirit back. Membership includes full access to the archives with more than 14 years of high quality interviews. You'll also get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel, as well as other sinful bonuses. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the U.S. mail really, really helps. I also have an Amazon wish list, as I always need equipment in this universe of entropy. Don't forget me books like Voices of Gnosticism or other Voices of Gnosticism. The show has grown to the point advertisers want to appear, but they are rejected as I only work for you and only you. You can do so many wonders, I just know it, and are so full of potential and the ability to navigate this age of Hermes. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye as always. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.